Hey, a little background. Um, last week, uh, Douglas told us the first two-thirds of a story, right? Um, Jesus died for our sins. I mean, that, that's a huge opening of a great story. And then the second part of the story he told us is that Jesus rose again. He died for our sins, and then he rose again, right? He defeated sin and death. And then I added, he, Douglas let me add that third part, that, that, uh, that the day that Jesus was resurrected, that for him, the big deal was is he got to give the Holy Spirit. He got to give a piece of the Godhead, of the triune God to us, to everybody. I mean, that, that was a big deal for Jesus. That's why he died on the cross. I mean, so that he could give us his Holy Spirit. I mean, it, it kind of all lines, lines up there. So the third part of the story, Jesus gets to uh, send the Holy Spirit, and that's a big deal. Um, that number third, that, that third part of the story is so important because without the Holy Spirit, we have hope for today, but we don't, well, excuse me, we have hope for when we die, but we don't have hope for today. That's the power of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? If it had just been Jesus being crucified and being risen from death, well, that, that's fantastic. Then we have a place to go when we die, but what about right now? Right? That, that, his death doesn't change much for us right now, but I tell you what, that gift of the Holy Spirit changes everything, changes everything for us. Um, so this week, Douglas has basically told us the end of the story. <laughs> I don't know if you recognize that. So I'm going to take what Douglas has shown us, and I'm going to kind of go backwards this morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 says this, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and gives light to everyone in the house. And all of that is absolutely true. Absolutely true. We, we all know this. But Douglas has left the beginning of the story again for me to tell. Um, you don't just show up and say, hey, I'm the light of the world. <laughs> we read this passage and go, hey, I want to be the light of the world. Uh, there's a little bit more to it than that, right? So I kind of want to dig into that this morning. What does it mean to be the light of the world? Because the fact of the matter is we are the light of the world. Um, and, and the fact that we are the light of the world is, is, is incredibly tightly tied to that third part of the story last week, the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to kind of combine the end of last week and jump right on into um, this week. Now, to begin with, um, as we look at this passage, um, just kind of some background information here. Um, maybe you're aware of this. We don't produce the light. Right? You read a passage like this, you are the light of the world, and then somehow we jump to the conclusion, well, right, and we're, and we're going to be all bright and shiny, and, and, and this passage is not saying that, right? We, we aren't the light of the world. Actually, Jesus Christ is the light of the world. The Apostle John says this at the very beginning of his gospel. Uh, chapter 1, verse 4, it says, in him, in Christ, Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind, and so in this context, the light originates with Jesus, not with us. Jesus is the light. And then a few verses on, we figure out how we got it, the true light that gives light to everybody. So Jesus Christ gives us his light. He was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. So Jesus Christ is the true light that gives light to the rest of us, and we give on, that we go on and give light to the people around us, and they give light to the people around them, and, and so on and so on. Well, that, that's kind of, kind of the idea here. Even, even when some people don't recognize the light or don't want the light because they, it's easier to operate in darkness if you're doing what you're not supposed to do. So some people like, ah, no, get away from here with that light. Uh, the second thing to remember, and this is really the, the, the key part of my message here, um, the light being referred to isn't simply like a flashlight or a porch light or a room light. 
right? We look at this passage and we, we quickly, our, our minds kind of go immediately to the immediate situation, a light, light bulb. I mean, that's where everybody's head went, a light bulb or a candle, right, in this passage. And whenever we, the, the scriptures talk about we're the light of the world, kind of more often than not, we all kind of go into that, that mode of thinking, oh, flip on a light so we can see. Um, and, and those are all absolute correct applications of this passage. Um, you know, the light can be used to guide us in darkness. This is kind of what this passage is saying. The light of, of Christ can guide us when the world is dark. Um, uh, and, and it acts as a warning sign for us. So, th- so these things are all, all absolutely true. But, but the fact of the matter is there's, there's this huge, powerful idea behind this light. Right, that's just about about as big as God Himself, and I want to reveal that story to you, that that backstory of this light um, this morning. And and John makes it really, really clear what the backstory is um, in verse fourteen. And, and if you were Jewish, you'd go, Psh. <laughs> but you're not. So I'm going to explain it if if you're all okay with that. Um, and if you're Jewish, raise your hand. I apologize. John chapter one verse fourteen says, "The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us." We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I want you to, there's two words there I've kind of highlighted, dwelling or his dwelling um, and glory. And, and from here on, I, I kind of want, and, and you really should, those two words live together, right? In, in Scripture, they, they just live together. Let me explain what, what I'm talking about here. Because um, this is where Jesus, as the light of the world, and the fact that he eventually calls us the light of the world, takes on just incredible significant additional value um, and, and power and meaning for us uh, when, we, when, we, when we get at this idea behind, behind the idea. Um, in Jewish scripture, light and dark aren't the thing, right? We don't worship and we're not afraid of light and dark. Light and dark are descriptors of something else. And in Jewish thought, light and dark describe, are, are ways that the Jewish people describe godly and ungodly, clean or unclean. Right, makes sense? Because light and darkness in and of itself is inherently not good or bad, right? If you're going to sleep at night, you want it dark. Dark is really good at that point. And, and if you're trying to do something on your computer, you need light. So light and dark by themselves inherently neither good nor bad. But to the Jewish and the way the Jewish use these words, they describe something else, godly and ungodly, clean, unclean, um, so we, we could read this passage as we are the light of the world or we are, the, we are a godly influence in the world. That would be okay to kind of read that like that. Um, but for John and his Jewish readers, the word glory is theologically loaded. I mean, it, that's a loaded word. Um, and it refers not just to light and, and godly, right, because that's kind of what I was, I was driving at to the Jewish people, um, light and represents godly. But when you throw in the word glory, um, there's just a whole bunch more added to this idea. Um, It refers really to the the very real, light-filled, glorious presence of God himself, right? When we talk about the glory of the Lord, we're talking about his actual presence in our life, a brilliant loving, glorious presence in our life. that's, That's the glory. When we talk about the glory of God, that, that, that's, you know, the presence of God in this world. Um, the glorious presence of the Lord comes to be known as, and here's a word, maybe you guys have heard of this one, the Shekinah. And I'm 99% sure I'm pronouncing that right, Pastor Dan, Shekinah. I've heard it Shekinah, heard it both ways, but I'm going to go with Shekinah. 
And it means that which dwells. And in the Jewish mind, that which dwells was God. Right? So it could have been anything at the beginning, but it, had come, it came to be known as God dwelling with us. When we talk about the Shekinah, it's the, glory, the glorious presence of God in our midst, in our, in our very, very presence. A um, couple examples. In the desert before the giving of manna, it says that the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. Right? And then before the giving of the Ten Commandments, it says that the glory of the Lord settled upon Mount Sinai. And the big deal is it's, it's visible. It's always visible, this glorious presence of the Lord. Otherwise, you know, wouldn't know he was there. Okay? Right? And then we find out as we, we dig into the Exodus that when the, when the people moved, right, the very presence of God, very, very visible in the cloud and then in the fire within the cloud at night. And so very, very visible. And, and for a people who, are, who just left slavery and they have no home and they're in the desert and they have no idea what's going to go on, having the visible, very real presence of God right in your midst that's, that'll give you peace. <laughs> like, I don't care what the world's going to throw at me. I'm, I'm good, right? If God is in my midst, man, fullness of life, blessings all over the place. It, it just, that's just the way it works. So in the Old Testament, this appearance of the glory of the Lord was very sporadic, right? It didn't happen all the time, all over the place every day, um, before this sporadic appearance of God, there was a time when the Shekinah was as regular as, as the sunrise, right? Garden of Eden. You think about it. The presence of the Lord would walk with them in the cool of the morning, right? Whoa. That, that's some intimate, intimate relationship right there where, where God himself is walking with you in the cool of the morning. So here's the deal. God had created a wonderful place called earth, and in the middle of this place called earth, he had put a garden. And this garden was where God's space and our space overlap. I'm going to kind of get a little weird here, so just kind of hang on to your seats here. Right? Kind of like a temple. Right? This temple has been placed, this, this sanctuary, and I'm going to use this loosely, has been placed in this Tri-Cities area, and it's almost like a footprint of God. Right? People drive by this place and they, they will wrongly, oh, that's where, that's where God lives. <laughs> Not necessarily like he's got a bunk back in the teen room or something. He doesn't live here. But, the, but that's the, in the people's mind, a temple, a church, sanctuary, this is, this is a God place. This is God space, right, where, where, where God is um, visible, um, unchallenged, and his holiness is palpable, unthreatened and pervasive, right? You walk into some holy places and you're just hushed, right? And you're, you're, you, you almost fall to your knees in some sacred places, right? Because you just feel, and that was the architect's design, is that you would feel the presence, the glory of the Lord um, in this place. So in the garden, God's space and human space overlap. Heaven and earth are one. Does that make sense? All right? So we continue with the story in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So two big things are going on here. 
First thing going on is, the, is this idea of the garden in the middle of the earth, right? The idea is that the garden is going to be kind of a, a, a blueprint from which God and humanity, working in partnership, are going to go out and fill and subdue the earth. Now, fill and subdue, those, those are words, different translations use different words, but really the, 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 the gist of it is um, they were going to minister to the earth. I, I like that best. God, in partnership with Adam and Eve or humanity, were going to minister to the earth. The whole goal is that someday the whole earth would look like the garden and God would be all in all. Right? Wherever you look, you see God. You see evidence of God. Wherever you look, you, the evidence. It's everywhere. So that's, that, that's the goal of God's creation, that one day God will be all, all in all. So the blueprint, the garden, we're going to go out and minister to this earth. And, and you, you kind of look at it, and, and the conclusion I think today is we're not doing a very good job. The earth is a sick patient. We, as the human agent in charge of making the earth whole, maybe we haven't done a real good job of that because maybe in our theology, maybe in our salvation ideas, we don't include everything else. We only include ourselves. But God's word makes it super, super clear that we're the pinnacle of creation, but everything else in creation finds its meaning through us. I mean, hope you all caught that. We are his agents to go into the world and, and organize chaos in a way that life comes forth instead of death. That's, that's what we're called to do. That's our vocation, right? We're, we're not looking to retire and hang out on the couch, right? That, that's, not the, that's not God's goal for us is that we would co-work with him, partner with him. And again, humanity is the one created agent that can pull this off, that, that can be the image of God and take care of the temple in his stead and the earth being his temple. But here's the problem. Humanity decided that they wanted a world apart from God. So we now have heaven and earth separated. We have God's world or heaven. And we have our world or, or earth and so humanity, you now listen very clear, carefully to this, is removed from the Shekinah. The glorious presence of the Lord and us in the garden and after the garden. We're no longer in the glorious presence of the Lord because he kicked us out of the garden because <laughs> we were foolish and we didn't follow the rules. And now we have two worlds. And the rest of the Bible story is how God is working to ultimately reunite his space and our space, to reunite heaven and earth by restoring his, this is the way he's going to do it, by restoring his Shekinah, his presence throughout everything. Right? Right now they're separated, but the whole goal is that his presence would be everywhere. Paul describes it in his first letter to the church of Corinth. He says this in chapter 15, verse 20. He says, when he has done this, and, and, and Paul is talking about when, when Christ has put death under his feet and, and, done, and, and did everything that Christ is supposed to do, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, the heavenly Father, so that God may be all in all. That's the goal of creation, that God would be all in all. Everywhere you look, you see life and you see light. There is no darkness. There is no death. There's no name calling. There's no political parties that hate each other. There's none of that. That's all gone. God is all in all. 
And again, when that happens, it'll signal the end of this story of sorrow and brokenness, and it'll signal the beginning of a story of unspeakable joy when God is all in all. Now, that story (laughs) was supposed to be the story of Israel. (laughs) That was the plan. Um, Within a separate people, God was going to make them holy, and then within this people that he created, um, he's going to carve out a space Right? Remember, his, his glory has departed from humanity, but he wants to dwell with his creation. That's his whole goal is he wants to be intimately involved with his creation. He wants to dwell among us, but we didn't want to dwell with him, so we're kind of separated right now. But that's, God's like, no, this isn't going to way, this isn't going to be the way it stays, right? This separation thing is not going to have the last word. I'm going to bring us back together again. So the Israelites or the, 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 this people that he's going to create a toehold for his presence, right? The Shekinah in the world um, so that God could be all in all to them and then through them to the whole entire world. This first toehold was called the tabernacle. I've shown a couple pictures of it there, uh, kind of the outside, what it looked like, and then what the inside looked like. You can see the, the Ark of the Covenant there with the two angels, you know, the, the mercy seat of God. That's the very presence of God on earth. So anyway, basically this tabernacle was a traveling temple that God commanded in detail, and, I'll, and you'll find out why in just a moment, how to set it up. Incredible detail. Important to note here. Here's, here's why all the detail is so important. Um, the tabernacle was seen as a microcosm of the entire world, right? The way God laid out that tabernacle, it's uh, kind of in, in, in a theological manner, it's a mirror image of our world, a microcosm. And at the same time, at the very same time, the world can be seen as a vast temple with the Garden of Eden at, as its center. And the idea is from its center, the glory of God would go out to all nations and all people, and his presence would be reestablished. That's the plan, right? His presence got separated from them, and now he's going to, because that's what he wants to dwell with his people, because that's the only way that we're going to be made whole. It's not like he makes us and says, hey, I'll see you after you die. Good luck on this earth. No, he wants to make us whole right now, right now even, And once Moses had completed the setting up of the temple, we read this in Exodus chapter 40, 34, and 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Bam, he's got his toehold now. Moses could not enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Verses 36 and 37, in all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. And then finally, verse 38, so the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during their travels. That's amazing. The glorious presence of the Lord right here. Right? Somebody want to pick on you, you just go, uh, talk to my buddy here. <laughs> God, don't mess with me because he's like right here <laughs> looking over my shoulder. And again, up to this point, Moses was the only one who had witnessed the Shekinah. But now God's toll hold has expanded greatly. Now all the Israelites have experienced the return of the glory of God. Now, You guys know the story. God leads them into the promised land after 40 years of shaping them, basically, is what he's doing. It was kind of a punishment, but it was also an opportunity for him to shape them into a holy people so they could properly represent his presence. So he leads them eventually into the promised land, and eventually they build Solomon's temple. 
built roughly along the same lines as the tabernacle. Here's what it looks like, uh, artist's rendition. And once it's completed, again, check this out. This is in 1 Kings chapter 8. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Right? So through the tabernacle and the temple, God has his toehold. He's, he's bringing his presence back to the people because what? He wants to dwell with his people. He loves us. Right? You don't love somebody and go, I don't want to hang out with them. That doesn't make a lick of sense. Right? He loves us so much, he wants to be with us. And he also not only wants to be with us, he knows that by being with us, we are made whole. We'll begin to act like him and look like him. So this, this is a pretty big deal. All right, so now God has a toehold on the earth, a place where heaven and earth overlap, right? It's at the temple. It's where heaven and earth overlap, where our space and God's space is one. Now, here's the idea. Just as Israel's, and I'm going to say this kind of slow, just as Israel's high priests were to minister in the sanctuary or the temple, which was a microcosm of the whole world, so too Israel was to minister in the land of promise, and the land of promise was simply a bigger sphere of God's temple and habitation. Right? You got the temple, then you got the promised land. And then, just as priestly Israel ministered in the land of promise, so too afterwards, priestly humanity was to minister to the world. Again, the big sphere of God's temple and habitation. Um, that was the plan anyways. <laughs> uh, best laid plans. Turns out Israel wasn't any better than Adam and Eve, right, at obeying God and partnering with God. And so, long story short, the nation split into two. Uh, in 722 B.C., the Syrian nation took away the ten northern tribes, which was the northern nation of Israel. They'd split into two nations. And about 150 years later, 586, 587, somewhere in there, B.C., the Babylonians come in and do away with the southern nation, which was Judah. Level it, destroy the temple, the whole nine yards. Now, right before the Babylonians destroyed the temple, so there had been a several waves of exiles that, that went to Babylon. They all didn't go in one big group. There were like three or four years or more of waves of people going to Babylon. And then even when they returned, they came back kind of in waves, right? It took a couple years. Um, but one of the first waves, and in one of the first waves was Ezekiel, the prophet. And throughout, throughout his book, his prophecy, his book, it, normally a lot of the chapters start out as he's sitting on the banks of the Khyber River, um, in deep sorrow with the, his fellow Israelites because they're not in the land anymore. They're in foreign land. They don't have a temple anymore, and they're quite worried that they don't got a God anymore. Right? They're, they're tore up. They're in mourning. They won't even play music. They're just, they're just sitting on the banks <laughs> in mourning, um, in tears. I'm just really, really tore up about it. Um, so Ezekiel has a vision while he's in Babylon of what's going on back at the temple because the temple hasn't been destroyed yet. And what he sees, what the Lord allows him to see that's going on inside the temple is just horrible. It's just horrible. It's just horrible things. The priests are, are, are just defiling themselves. They're defiling the property. They're, they're, it's just, just horrible. And so God's like, I can't have my presence in this unholy mess. 
And so we read this in Ezekiel chapter 11, then the cherubim with the wheels beside them spread their wings and the glory of God of Israel was above them. The glory of the Lord went up from within the city. It left the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. I was reading a book this week and and the writer says that that Ezekiel is, is almost trying to say like the, 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 the glorious, the Shekinah, the glorious presence of the Lord left, left Jerusalem and then glances back almost with tears. Like, I can't believe it's come to this. I, I, but I can't stay. I can't have my glorious presence, my Shekinah here and up on that mountain. And like the holy, the, the, the presence of God glances back and w- with remorse and lament. Oh, Israel, you killed the prophets. Oh, Jerusalem. So then we have, they come back 70 years later, they get to return, and then they have 400 years of silence, right? No prophets, no nothing. And the people, again, well, we got our land back, but we don't got a temple. They actually did try to build a temple, and it was a super sorry affair. I mean, the old men, they, they literally cried when they looked at what they kind of cobbled back together when they came back from captivity from Babylon. It was, it was just, it was horrible. It was just a kind of a mess. Um, but in the decades before Jesus, a guy named Herod the Great comes on the scene, um, He's kind of right in the line between Rome and the Jewish people. He's not full-blooded Jew, um, but he knows he needs to ingratiate himself to them in order to keep them peaceful so that the Roman government will allow him to stay in charge. And so he's kind of riding that line between the Romans and the Jews, and he decides, well, I'll bet you the Jews will love it if I rebuild this horrible temple that they got going on here. And he did. He built a magnificent, it's called Solomon's Temple, um, Second temple, excuse me, it's called the second temple, even though it's actually the third temple, you know, the second one did away with. Um, But this second temple was just absolutely amazing. But even the priests, you read this, they got together and they said, yeah, this is all amazing, this is fantastic, but there's only one thing missing. We got all the gold stuff, we got all the rooms, what's missing? The Shekinah. It's an empty building. We're sitting here worshiping in an empty temple that does not have a God in it. Like, this is bad. This, this is not good. And so throughout the intertestimonial period, they're, they're waiting. They're waiting. When will the Shekinah return? When, when will it happen? When will it happen? Well, in our series, we've learned that the Apostle John and the New Testament writers, all of them want us to know that in Jesus Christ, It's happened, right? The glory of God has returned. The Shekinah is in Jesus now. Listen to this. This is in John chapter 1, verse 51. Um, He'd been been collecting disciples, and and he runs across Nathanael. And Nathanael had been sitting underneath a fig tree, and Jesus quickly figured out that he was a a good Jewish man and and that he was a a, a pretty pure guy. And and Nathanael's just like so amazed that Jesus knew this about him. And he's like, oh, Jesus, you're amazing. But Jesus says, you ain't seen nothing yet. You ain't seen This is what he says. Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Right? Wherever I go, there's going to be like this portal. Like any of you guys seen the Marvel movies? Right? There's this portal. Wherever I go, there's this portal between heaven and earth. And there's like, there, there's, there's no dividing line. Right? Wherever I go, heaven is 
on earth. Heaven and earth are overlapping. I go over here and overlaps over here and I go over here and it overlaps over here. Wherever I am, wherever I am, there's life where there was once death. Wherever, wherever I am. Unclean becomes clean. Right? Everywhere Jesus goes and everything that Jesus touches, life replaces death. Heaven overlaps one chunk of earth at a time. Wherever Jesus goes and whatever he touches, a little bit of heaven, a little bit more of heaven overlapping on earth. How? How, how is this happening? It's the Shekinah, right? It's the, the presence of God in Jesus. Jesus is the new temple, right? Jesus is the new temple where humanity meets with God. We saw that in the mercy seat, right? The angel sitting at the front and the, same, and the angel sitting at the foot. And John makes it as clear as he can that, that the presence of God has returned. It's returned in Jesus Christ, the Shekinah has returned. And it gets better. It gets better than this. See, Jesus knew that he was physically limited. That's why he told one of the reasons he told the disciples, you're going to do way greater things than me. I mean, I've done some amazing, but you, one of the things that you are going to be able to do is go all over the earth. Christ was physically limited by his body. He kind of hung around Palestine and the rest of the world. What, what, what to do about the rest of the world? Because humans, they've turned out to be really, really lousy image bearers. They're, they're horrible at it, right? They, they want to image themselves. You know, they spend more time in front of a mirror than trying to image God. So God had to have a better plan. So what, what, what does he come up with? He comes up with the perfect image bearer, his son. Becomes perfect humanity. Stands in for us does everything that we couldn't do and we wouldn't do so that the Shekinah could return. Again, Jesus is incredibly physically limited, which means God's presence is going to be physically limited, but not with the Holy Spirit. Right? That's why Jesus was so excited on Resurrection Sunday. Like, I'm no longer limited. The gift that I'm going to give you, I am unlimited now. I'm everywhere you want to be there. Wait a minute, that's American Express, my bad. Jesus knows that when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we are the new temple. And when we share communion in just a little bit, that's Jesus' way of reminding us that we are, we are the temple. Right? And when we take in the presence of the Holy Spirit, when we take in the presence of the Holy Spirit, we become walking around Shekinah. Right? That's the light that shines from us. That's when we say we're the light of the world. It's not... I'm going to shine a flashlight in an ugly place. I'm going to bring God into an ugly place. I'm going to bring the very presence of God into dark places. I'm not going to go alone and shine a light and do a flashlight or anything like that. I'm going to, wherever I go, because I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, there goes the Shekinah, the glorious presence of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 6, chapter, verse 19, chapter 6, verse says this. Um, Paul wrote this says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? I want to close with this um, good friend of mine, uh, Ken. When I was a school teacher, we did a lot of mountain bike riding together. Uh, one, of my, one of my surgeries is from stupid mountain bike riding. But anyway, um, 
He did not like, he, he grew up Catholic, and, and I would constantly, come on, come, come to my church, come to my church. He's like, Jerry, if I entered your church building, the walls would probably cave in on me, right? Because God would not want me anywhere near his presence. And I didn't think about it at the time, but now I think about it, and I wanted to call Ken and say, you know what? When we were mountain bike riding, that's when you were in danger because you were next to me, and I was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's when you should have been worried Right? God doesn't live at my church. You go down there on Thursday afternoon, there ain't nobody there. He's not in a bunk bed somewhere. No. God is wherever we are. Wherever we, Holy Spirit-filled people are, that's where the holy presence of God is. It turns out Ken was in more danger hanging out with me than going to church. And when we share communion, we're reminded that whatever, wherever we go, there goes God. And when he calls us the light of the world, he's reminding us that we are the home of the Holy Spirit. We have the Shekinah in us. That's what shines. God shines. If you keep trying to shine yourself, you're going to look foolish. But if you let God shine, I've included this morning before we do communion. Hopefully, you all grab one of these cards. Here's the idea of these cards I want you to be in prayer. It's just each one win one. The idea is hopefully in the course of a year, you would win somebody to Christ. Make it a goal. Maybe five people to Christ. And here's the deal. I don't want you to be afraid of evangelizing or reaching people. The goal, according to my message this morning, is to go love people, right? If you're filled with the very presence of God, pray for an opportunity to hang out with one of these people that you're going to write the name down and you're going to keep it in your wallet. You're going to put it on your refrigerator. You're going to put it on your mirror in your bathroom, wherever you're more often. I don't know, put it right next to the toilet. Wherever it needs to be to remind you, Lord, set up an appointment with these people. Make me cross paths with these people and then give me courage to say something loving to them. Don't get all freaked out about inviting them to church, right? Remember, God doesn't live here. God lives in you. And when you're hanging out with your friends, your friends are hanging out with God. And so I want to encourage you, use this little tool. I'm going to be referring to it quite often in this next year. Again, you don't need to write down, maybe, maybe you already knew five names, boom, 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 boom. Maybe it'll take you a couple of weeks. Who do I really want God to set up a, a holy appointment with? Right? Who does God want me to just share him with? This is your key right there. Bow your heads. Father, thank you for the work that you have done this morning. I don't know what it is. I wasn't able to see it. But I know for a fact that you have been at work because your word says that you never stop being at work. Your, your word says that you're resting, but you're only resting because... The Holy Spirit is doing what the Holy Spirit does and Jesus is doing what Jesus does. And followers, your followers, are doing what we do all around the world. We spread your love. So Father, thank you for everything that you've done this morning, the work that you've begun in some life, the work that you're continuing in another life, and quite possibly the work that you're getting ready to complete. And someone's going to be glorified. So, Father, you're, you're at work at all steps along the, the path, the journey. And we thank you that you, you see each one of us and where we're at. And you're never discouraged. 
You're never discouraged because you've given us everything that we need to one day stand before you and for you to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your reward. Thank you, Father, that that's, that's a reality for people in this room here and people listening to my voice. That's, a now, that's now a new reality. Or maybe it's a reality that's been reaffirmed this morning. But, Father, thank you for all the work that you're doing in this place, in this city, amongst the government officials of this city and the teachers, school workers, the linemen out there, uh, first responders. Um, Father, thank you for everyone who, who hears your call and then goes out into the world filled with your Holy Spirit to do, to partner with you in redeeming this world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.